This podcast is home to conversations about skills, about the resilience they bring, and about living closer to the ground so we don't have quite so far to fall if our fragile modern systems fail us. It's hosted by me, Katie Payne, a person who couldn't even wipe her own butt on the first day of kindergarten, but is slowly, surely learning how to human. And just as a side note, reclaiming our wild capabilities may, in fact, change our relationship to toilet paper. But more on that another time. You're listening to Resilience, gratefully recorded on Jar Jar Warung country, and I hope it supplies you with inspiration to become the keeper of wisdom and smarts and endangered arts in your community. Because regardless of what the future holds, whether or not we ever need to start fires by friction out of necessity, it's just fun to learn stuff. And today we're learning stuff from Dave Pollard. He's a writer on culture, complexity, deep ecology, collapse, and the sharing economy. His article, How Do We Teach the Critical Skills Needed to Face Collapse, caught my eye last year because it offered a neat and tidy list of skills that Dave sees as crucially important to learn or relearn in the coming years. Things like growing food, making pottery, building shelter, and applying first aid. And more surprisingly, skills like listening, critical thinking, creativity, and imagination. In this chat, Dave offers his predictions for where society is headed, what we can individually and collectively do to prepare, and how to keep a hold of joy whilst white-knuckling it through the Anthropocene. For someone whose focal point is calamity, Dave is remarkably chipper. I left our discussion with a massive smile on my face and little doubt that this was the best way to kick off the series. There's lots of Dave-related links and goodness in the show notes, so flock there if you want more. And for now, please enjoy this really special conversation with Dave Pollard. I'll catch you on the other side. I reached out to you about the article that um, pretty much foundationally inspired this podcast, and I believe you wrote that a couple of years ago now, the critical skills needed to face collapse. It wasn't that long ago. I think it was earlier this year, actually. This is the one that was published, republished in Resilience, I think. Yeah, quite a few of my blog posts get republished. Uh, nothing beats free, free material when you're, when you're a publisher. So I've learned that uh, it's not so much an, an uh, recognition of the brilliance of my writing. It is the fact that it's, uh, it's good value for the money. <laughs> I'm sure you can take a little more credit than that. And it certainly really landed with me. Um, so I'm interested to speak to you. Um, we'll start, start from a place of um, that article. But as I understand it, you've somewhat evolved your thinking or even superseded that style of list making only being only a short time ago. So um, Yes, Dave, I'd love to hear from you what inspired that article and a little about the skills, the hard and soft skills that you um, presented as useful for us to be adapting um, to what's coming and also to how you've gone from that place, how you've moved and where you've moved to since. Yeah, I think uh, what happened was that um, at one st stage I had a pretty idealistic view that what we needed to do was to have a scenario, because I used to be involved in scenario planning, 
exercises in business. So we needed to have future state scenarios that would help us to understand exactly how collapse would unfold. And therefore, we'd know what skills we need and in what quantity, and we could kind of assign people to, to say, okay, you're going to need to learn this and you're going to need to learn that. And it didn't take long for me to realize that was pretty naive. Um, it's one thing to say that collapse, if you study the history books, is inevitable. It's another thing to say it's predictable how and when it's going to unfold. And so since it's not predictable, you can't really prepare for it. So my philosophy is, has evolved from the early days when I believed that, you know, you need to, you need to identify what the critical skills were learn a bunch of those skills, and then find other people to create a sense of community so you'd be all ready. <laughs> uh, and now I've taken several steps back from that, and I believe that it's really largely about adaptation, uh, that we're going to have to be ready to face whatever may come that we can't predict. Um, and that adaptation means that basically we have to start with our own readiness so work on ourselves internally first of all and when i did the the list of skills i basically started um on that basis that uh you know we need to uh, learn we need to bone up on our critical thinking skills um or we need to relearn how to do our own learning because most of us have been brought up in a schooling system um, where we don't need to know how to learn. We're told everything that we need to know. In a world of collapse, we're going to have to return to self-directed learning and learn spontaneously and, and learn the skills to do that. And that's going to require us to regenerate a sense of curiosity, which I think a lot of us have lost, and uh, repractice how to imagine, um, because we haven't, most of us had practice imagining. So those are kind of the those internal skills, first of all. Um, but it's not only the, the skills, it's also a question of self-awareness and self-knowledge. Um, when we're dealing with the problems of collapse and we're finding ourselves in a community where we may not like a lot of the people <laughs> that we get stuck with in community, um, we're going to have to learn to understand our reactivity, um, understand where other people are coming from, so be able to put ourselves in their shoes. Um, and, uh, and so that's going to take a lot of practice and a lot of work to learn how to build community with the people we find ourselves with at the various stages of collapse. And I can, I can talk about how I think that will unfold if that would useful. Well, yes, indeed. Before we get too far into those skills and the adaptation over preparedness, which I'd love to dig into with you, and also the communitarian approach that you have um, and experience in intentional communities and that kind of thing, um, I don't want to take for granted the, the definition of collapse or the, the way that you see collapse um, unfolding. So if you could give us a bit of a dust jacket summary of what you mean by collapse, that would be really excellent to frame the conversation. Right. Well, there's, there's four books that are really good for people to read up on if they want. And they're the four. I've read a lot of books on this subject, but the four that have been most 
valuable to me in learning is, first of all, the books by Jared Diamond, of course, like Guns, Germs, and Steel. Um, and secondly, a book by a Canadian who lives not far from me, actually, by the name of Ronald Wright called A Short History of Progress, which basically attempted to, it basically covers the same material as, material as Jared Diamond's books, but does it in about a quarter the, uh, the volume. So it's a good way to kind of understand why societies inevitably, civilizations inevitably collapse and how they collapse. Um, and the third book, which is fascinating to me, was also by Ronald Wright, and it's a novel that he wrote afterwards to try to envision what life would be like after collapse. And this is where this whole idea of imagination comes. I think there's a tendency for a lot of us to think that once things collapse, everything will be like today except going backwards. So it'll be like the old Wild West or like a Mad Max film or something like that. Um, and what, is, what it's likely to be is something we can't even begin to imagine. It's going to be completely unlike anything we have had before in history. Uh, we've never had a global civilizational collapse before. So the book, A Scientific Romance, the novel that, he, that Ronald Wright wrote, is a wonderful exercise in imagining how that might unfold. And the other book that also imagines that and also draws on currently collapsing societies, uh, which I found even more valuable, is a book by a woman by the name of Anna Lohenhop Singh called The Mushroom at the End of the World. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's a no, difficult book to read. It's a complex uh, study of uh, societies. But basically, its argument is that the next economy, after our current industrial growth economy, won't be a renewable energy economy. It will be a scavenger economy. And she describes the way scavenger economies work by drawing on the way in which people from Southeast Asia who came to the Pacific West Coast of the United States after the war in Vietnam, uh, and they couldn't make a living doing anything. They had no skills. They didn't have the language. You know, they were in the streets. <clears throat> so they created a new um, subsistence economy around valuable mushrooms that are highly marketable in countries like Japan. And... Uh, and, and what she shows is how these people actually created in the forests of Oregon, primarily, forests which had been basically clear-cut and then abandoned because their economic value had been lost. But they were the perfect growing area for some of these incredibly valuable mushrooms. So these Southeast Asians, organized around their tribal communities, created entirely independent, self-sufficient economies in Oregon State that tied into the existing economy through the export of mushrooms to Asia. Uh, and it's just a fascinating study. And then she uses that as a basis to explain how a scavenger economy actually works. And it's not as terrible as you might think. It's actually pretty cool. And if you're a good innovator, we run something... Uh, 
I'm still involved a little with Bowen Island, and we run something on Bowen called the Fix-It Fair. You probably have some of those there, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and people absolutely love these things. You know, they're all of these people who know how to fix just about anything, uh, from bicycles to 100-year-old waffle irons. They're able to fix these things, and that's the kind of skill um, that we're going to need to be able to... Uh, uh, to survive going forward. So th- those were the kind of books that inspired me to envision how collapse will un- unfold. The reading that I've done of previous civilizations suggests that this isn't going to be a quick Mac- Mad Max collapse and then we start building again thing. This is going to happen over, the actual collapse is going to happen over decades, probably in multiple stages where you know the expression is slowly and then all at once. Um, so we'll have periods at which, you know, there'll be precipitous declines, you know, stock market collapses and things like that. And then there'll be periods of relative stability where people will try to rebuild what was there before and it won't work. This is a, a lesson from past collapses. People will try to rebuild what was broken because it's the only way they know. Um, and eventually after three or four cycles of this, where the rebuilding doesn't work, we'll start to learn how to rebuild something new, which requires us to, to kind of reimagine it. So I, I think it's possible if you look at the history of uh, past civilizations that it could take millennia, like thousands of years, before we reach a state. Uh, there's something called... Um, in uh, mathematics, the long tail of the power law. And what it suggests is that both technological advance, all the stuff that we've got, the hockey stick things of the growth and then collapse, um, they're all going to have a long tail, which means after the more precipitous collapse, there's going to be this long period of slow decline. And that will probably end one of two ways. Either we will find new viable subsistence ways to live, which are joyful and sustainable and so on, or will go extinct. And uh, I don't think that's a choice. We're just going to see. And it, as I say, it could take centuries or even millennia before we arrive at that end state. But I, most people are horrified when I start talking about this. But I find it absolutely amazing, exciting. I mean, we live in a world where we're dependent we don't know how to do things for ourselves anymore. And once collapse happens, we're going to have to learn to do things for ourselves. And as I found out from the Fix-It Fair, it's really fun to learn these self-sufficiency skills. So I think it's going to be a blast, even though it's going to be scary as hell uh, as it happens. Yeah, thanks for bringing um some synonyms for fun into this conversation because <laughs> this is this is the the conversation I'd like to release first on the Resilience right. podcast. But I know that um, you've described yourself as a joyful pessimist. I'm an optimistic, um, oriented towards you know the sunnier side of life kind of person. The reason that I am fascinated with, um, I guess I, I'm not fascinated with with collapse um, and the kind of details of that. I'm actually fascinated by. The, uh, the questions of how to live, how to enrich my own existence, how to eke 
the meaning out of this life that I've been given. And it just so happens that talking about collapse and what's what's going on in our civilization, um, how to how to tend my own life support systems, that happens to be um, a really good proxy for the questions I've always had, and probably the question at the heart of human existence, which is what does it mean to be here? What really matters, and how do I find the joy and pleasure in this life that also contains a lot of horror and violence and despair and dread. And I'm wondering if that's the kind of um, foundation of your own curiosity on this subject as well. Yeah, I think it's evolved over time. Initially, I mean, I, I called this blog when it started, it's hard to believe 21 years ago, the blog is called how to save the world. And I was only half kidding. (laughs) <laughs> when I uh, when I titled it that, I titled it that because I knew it would attract a lot of Google attention, and you wouldn't believe the emails that I get because I've got pretty close to top Google rank on on the expression "save the world" now uh, after all these years. Um, yeah, but it it is it's interesting how that how my thinking has evolved from being um, how are we going to turn things around to this approach of how are we going to adapt ourselves. And part of that evolution came by um, reading a book on dog behavior called The Secret Kindness of Animals by Melissa Holbrook Pearson. Um, And I read it because somebody said said to me, this is not a book about dog behavior read it, you're going to love it. And it's actually a complete history of behavioralism, the, the philosophy of behavioralism, the psychological uh, field of behavioralism. And I hated B.F. Skinner when I was younger. It was just like, this was, uh, I, I couldn't believe that uh, we didn't have complete control over everything that we were doing. Um, but reading um, Melissa's book, made me realize just to what extent we are conditioned in, uh, in our behavior. Um, so uh, on that basis, um, I started to think, okay, we're not going to be able to turn things around. How can we adapt ourselves if, we do, if, if, if all we're doing is conditioning um, each other? And the realization of this, which came to some extent, it was reinforced by another book that I recently read, which is just a wonderful uh, book um, by the uh, neuroscientist um, Robert Sapolsky, who's worked with baboons. And I love studying wild, I love learning about wild animals because I think they have an enormous amount to teach us about how to live in community and how to live in society. Um, So uh, I had spent a fair bit of time uh, working with intentional communities because at one stage I figured, okay, these are people who understand the importance of building community. They'll have a lot of the answers that we need on how to build a a community. And what I discovered was they really didn't have the clue about how to build community. They had great ideas. Um, the practice was itself really valuable, but most intentional communities only last about five years, and then they collapse. And um, 
I had a friend that I corresponded with by the name of Joe Bajant, who died a few years ago. Uh, but his argument was the reason why you can't learn to build community is because community is born of necessity. And he reinforced that by inviting me down to stay with him in a little village in Belize in Central America. Um, and I was between jobs, so I said, well, this sounds like fun. I'll get lots of blog posts out of this one. Uh, so I went down and visited with him. And, I, and he told me the story of this village, which is that 300 or so years ago, a bunch of slave ships went aground in the Caribbean. Uh, a lot of the slaves managed to escape. And they, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know where they were. So they made their way up the coast. And they found this little village, which was right on the, the Gulf of Mexico and seemed to be a good climate. They could grow things there. And basically for 300 years, they lived their own lives. They made their own rules. They did everything themselves. They were a completely self-sufficient community. And when I visited it, um, I discovered it still is. Um, all of the people, the kids at a very you know, young age, uh, they learn how to hook up uh, water supply and power supply, uh, how to fix it when it goes down. Um, all of these skills they learn because they have to, because there's no central authority taking responsibility for this. They've developed a remarkable medical system um, that, you know, it doesn't do complicated surgery, but it works really well for the people and they have an incredibly long and healthy life as a result of this. They have their own police system, um, which doesn't involve anybody in uniform. Uh, when somebody has been robbed or something like that happens, the people in the community know who did it because they know each other so well. They know the history. They know the stories of each other. So when somebody gets robbed, they go around to the house of the person that they know who did it, and they retrieve it, and they bring that person back, and that person apologizes for having done it. And then they say, okay, well, we understand you did this because you, need to, you have a drug habit and you need to feed it, so let's deal with that, and so on. Mm -hmm. That's how you build community. Mm. And that's what we're all going to have to learn how to do when things fall apart. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're not going to be able to learn it from textbooks. Yeah. Uh, we're going to learn it when we have to with the people who we happen to find ourselves with yeah. when everything falls apart. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be great fun and it's going to be fascinating learning experience. We're going to have to mm -hmm. unlearn a lot of the things and a lot of the beliefs that we think, you know, that certain things have to be done by centralized authority. They don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's much... Um, more promising prospect for people who are going about their daily lives um, and not necessarily engaging much with their neighbour sphere. I was listening to Jem Bendel speak to Douglas Rushkoff on Team Human recently and right. 
Jem was talking about the billionaires in their bunkers now progressing to the idea that actually we'll need a community and so potentially we'll make, you know, mini little nations and defend those nations and people have skin in the game. But that's <laughs> obviously still really misguided and fraught because they're talking about growing, you know, tomatoes in tubes and all of this kind of technological hoo-ha. But what I hear you saying is that actually beyond that is the rooting in place, adapting where you are and bonding with people around you due to um yeah out of out of necessity not necessarily yeah not this intentional retreat to a perfect utopian kind of community so are you are you kind of saying that don't worry about it too much now because when it happens it happens and we do adapt because that's the nature of being a human or are there things people can do if they're listening in an urban space or you know um, feeling the pull to try and build some community where there are where they are are there things that you'd suggest as being useful as a precursor yeah I think it's always it's always useful to be ready for whatever comes along uh, and the problem for most of us is our lives are so busy we don't have any time to learn new things um, but, you know, so I call them my reminder list. I used to call it my action list of things that I wanted to learn how to do, new skills to learn. But now it's a reminder list, which is these would be things that would be useful to know how to do to be more adaptable when things start to get more difficult. And, and that's where that uh, original list came from. Um, you know, and it's, they're not complex technical things. They're things like, learning how to need less uh, and want less. Um, oh, that's a huge one. I'd love to start the do less movement. I'm sure that, that many people are already championing the do less, life flat kind of <laughs> approach to things. But can you talk a little bit more about the sexiness of having less? Because I feel it's just not part of the conversation. It's how do we continue the consumption, you know, continue to fund the consumption that we're used to, but actually we're going to need to really power down in so many respects. Absolutely. And I think part of the problem is that a lot of our current society, because we are so dependent on others, we're driven to some extent by fear. And the only way we can overcome that fear is having more than we need. <laughs> so we've got some fallback. So this, you know, the stock market goes down, we'll still got this little buffer and so on. Um, I think the only way you can learn to need and want less is by practicing it. Uh, the uh, astonishing exercise that taught me about this was when I retired um, because I was earning a large amount of money as a senior partner with a major international consulting or organization. And uh, they said, well, we're, you're going to get the pension, the partner's pension, and it's going to give you 40% of your current income for the rest of your life. And I said, oh, so that means I don't get to retire because I got to, you know, I got to make up the other 60% somehow. And it was an older retired partner who just laughed and he said, just try it. And to my astonishment, I actually lived a more comfortable life on 40% of the income when I retired than I had when I had 100%. For a start, when you stop working, you find that your clothes budget goes way down. Your car, your, the, the repairs and maintenance and the gasoline for your 
automobile goes way down. Um, and life becomes far more enjoyable because the more stuff you've got, the more stuff you have to worry about breaking down and falling apart. So the key to practice um, in terms of needing and wanting less is try it. <laughs> set yourself a budget. Mm, yeah. yeah, set yourself then, a budget and, and, and show, prove to yourself that you can do with uh, much less than what you have now. Yeah, and that definitely calls on the imagination and human ingenuity that you spoke about earlier. I think having those challenges and games can really inspire positive behavioural change. Um, and also, too, I wonder if you've noticed this, but role modelling is such a powerful force in um, a life of simplicity and voluntary frugality. Like the people that I I share a, um, a property, I'm here living in exchange, and the woman, the the elder of our property, Sue, um, you know, I've cooked, I've catered courses and things with her and watching her cook and um you know, if we're roasting potatoes, if there's any, first of all, she measures out the oil absolutely to the most infinitesimal kind of (laughs) millimetre of quantity required to coat those potatoes and crisp them. But after they've been taken out of the baking dish, if there's any glisten, like a slick of oil in the bottom, it's, you know, mopping that up with something, using it again. She's so reverential, you know, every single thing, whether it's food or, um, you know, clothing or shelter, everything in her life is an act of great devotion to the things that she does have. And for that reason, you know, the folks that I live with, they're um, pretty well known, you know, the the co-originators of permaculture, but they live below the poverty line. You know, we're all living below the poverty line, not really, um, you know, we're paying our taxes in service to the commons and service to community and that kind of thing. We just don't earn a lot of money. And yet I think, gosh, this is absolute luxury you know I'm living in luxury we're eating the most gorgeous food that we've grown and I think yeah Sue Sue Dennett especially her her role modelship and the the culture that she's created in this environment of hey this is how we do things you know it's there is zero waste everything's a loop and um it's just not cool to be you know a wasteful hedonist so that I feel that benefit too is couched in a culture of of frugality and and care for resources. So I'm wondering if you have that around you, or if you've seen people, you know, positively oh, yeah. respond to that that culture. I think you, I think we've got that in spades. There's an, another great book called The Logic of Sufficiency. Uh, I can't remember the name of the author offhand, but um, if if you're interested in learning more about how living at a level of sufficiency rather than a level of abundance and surplus. Is a better life. Uh, it makes more sense in a, in a lot of different ways. That's a great book to read. One of the things that really hit home to me, because I lived on Bowen Island, this little island, for a long period of time, and uh, I discovered at one stage that I didn't know my neighbors. So what we did is we, we said, we're going to have a potluck. Do you have potlucks in Australia? Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. We're going to have a potluck and we're going to invite all of the neighbors, everybody who lives within, I guess there was about 30 houses that were within a reasonable walking distance from our, uh, from our place. And uh, most of them showed up with this potluck. And what we talked about was, you know, you start with the formalities. What do you do? 
But what we really got into is what do you care about? What do you do with your leisure time? What do you need that you can't get on this island? Because you get a little bit isolated when you're living on an island off the coast. And it was astonishing to discover uh, I bought probably 20 or 30% less stuff um, in the years after that meeting because I said, I don't need to buy this tool because I know that this guy has one. Um, I don't need to, you know, uh, learn how to do this particular thing because I can just invite this neighbor who knows how to do it better than anybody. And in return, I'll, I'll offer them something. Uh, we did something called a gift circle, which is a wonderful exercise as well, uh, where we actually invite people to come and tell us what you need and tell us what you have a surplus of, which could be time, it could be space, it could be tools and things that you have, it could be food that you've got a surplus of, if you've got trees bursting with fruits and so on. Um, and it was a fascinating exercise. It was terrifying for most people to go through that, not because they weren't willing to talk about what they had a surplus of. Everyone's willing to talk about that. But when they acknowledged what they needed. Um, and so first of all, you had to listen to find out what people had in surplus. And then all of a sudden you realize, wow, I could really use that. So then you have these like quiet one-on-one -on -one conversations with people. Um, and when you start to do that, this is the essence of community, is when you know who has what skills, what stuff, what space, what extra time, all of a sudden your needs are way, way less than they were before. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Gift circles are an amazing technology of of um, meeting each other's needs and community building building and I love the idea of gathering without any kind of overlay of you know an agenda simply to share a meal with your neighbors and get to know each other and then naturally those conversations emerge um, and right. also too you touched on that relearning process of how to receive and how to be in that awkward space of, um, you know, asking, asking for something that you require and then also um, breaking through the formalities or the etiquette of the the kind of dominant system where we, we're in our little homes, don't you dare knock on the door unless we have a, a pre-organised appointment, um, let alone turn up at someone's house and ask, oh, can I please put some washing in your machine or borrow your drill? Like I, I think that there's a huge piece around being comfortable to be in a position of asking and also getting over our, our shyness and preciousness right. around interrupting or breaking into those, those four walls that people have kind of set around themselves and that's a huge piece of it for me too, like how to... Um, how do I extend out into that community, even though I do know all those those amazing resources and gifts are there? It's then coming around to that, and possibly too hang-ups about, um, gosh, it's a bit on, it's it's a bit um, filthy or feral not to be able to do my own laundry or not to have such <laughs> and such a thing, you know. So there's a lot in there psychologically. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that when 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 I was involved in the transition movement. 
I initially put together with a group of friends this list of about 100 skills that we thought people needed. You know, and this is like overwhelming. And we actually made a game out of this where you had to, it's basically a balancing act. All games are dealing with, you know, issues of limited resources and scarcity and decisions between them. So it was like, which skills are you going to develop and which ones are you going to pass on? Um, and it was kind of scary and a little overwhelming until we realized not everybody needs to know everything. Yeah. The most important thing is knowing who in your community has these skills. Yeah. And who, who can decommission the nuclear power reactor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And I did, um, I did derail your reminder list, Dave. I'd love to hear more about what's on that list, what you're reminding yourself that um, you may want to cultivate or cultivate in the time that you have. Um, yeah, I guess what, what struck me is that most of the survivalists, of course, are focused on the, the hard skills, the technical skills. Uh, and it was interesting when I published that list of skills that uh, – a permaculturalist who's from Australia by the name of Peter Webb. Um, and he's now living in the jungles of Brazil. And he's introduced permaculture culture, permaculture activities back into the indigenous peoples in that jungle. They, they initially used them, but they of forgot course. because, you know, they got taken over by like colonized like the rest of us. Um, and he talked, he added to the list. He basically said, in terms of the tech, the, the, the hard skills, one of the hard skills is how to maintain a fire. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not until you've tried to start a fire. Yeah. Even, even that, under, where do you find dry materials? What are the kind of the fineness, the middle, the, the medium kindling? What are you yeah. using as a spindle and a board? You know, there's, and even if, if you're one person, how almost impossible it is to start a fire by friction exactly. um, with a hand drill. And how long do you season different kinds yeah. of woods? I mean, it, they don't take, it doesn't take a huge amount of skill to learn these, but they're absolutely essential skill. He also talks about the, the fact that one of the skills that we've lost is the ability to identify and forage edibles. Because we consider it to be, except for mushroom fans. Mushroom fans get this completely. <laughs> but other people don't. Uh, there, there's a, a woman on Bowen Island who studied this extensively. And Bowen Island, is, it's a volcanic island. Uh, and it's got a lot of forested area. But at one stage or other, it was all forested. So it's, it's not old growth forest. And she actually did an experiment where she lived in the forest for a week, eating nothing but local plants that she found in the forest. And she did her research, of course, in advance. And everybody was just like, they couldn't believe it, you know, because it's, it's like it's just all weeds. <laughs> what in the world did you eat? You know, are you feeling okay? Do we need to take you to the hospital? <laughs> um, That's pretty impressive. And, it's very impressive to be able to sustain yourself like that because I don't, again, it's like the fire thing. Um, I, I don't think people quite realize how many calories we require. And also right. that, you know, if you're just subsisting on vegetable matter, it's pretty, you're going to be very, very hungry. Um, yeah, I think that's true. Although you're talking to a vegan, so. 
<laughs> oh, okay. No, I understand. I, you know, I'm an ex. I'm not offended. I'm a, I'm for, just a former vegan, so I will definitely empathize and and relate with you. But yeah. I mean, I I feel like growing a lot of vegetables and I grow a lot of vegetables here. It is mm-hmm. quite energy intensive for what I get back calorifically. Right. Yeah. But I understand the nutrient density and the diversity that we need in our diets and how to how to cleverly kind of procure starches and carbs and things that are more filling. But yeah, I I don't know, I sometimes think, gosh, it's it's really, really tough as a single person, you know, alone style going out into the wilderness and, and your friend going out onto the into the land. Um, that's a tall order and it's not it's not as simple as, you know, Oh, just you know, felling felling an animal and eating some mushrooms. Like it takes a whole village, it takes a whole region to feed. It does, and again, community. it's mm-hmm. it's a question of not trying to do it all yourself. You work with other people, so somebody goes out and forages for the whole group. Somebody else goes and starts the fire for the whole group. You know, this is how community works. Is uh, when you do that. But it's interesting. There's there's several farms on Bowen Island where they wouldn't pretend that they grow all of their own food because basically they say it would be boring. <laughs> I don't get enough variety, interesting variety in, in my food. But what they do is that they have determined that on a calorie basis, the amount of food that they produce is more than the amount of uh, caloric energy that they actually consume. So they are a net exporter of food. So they sell more into the local community, the local community markets and so on, than they bring back in terms of other foods uh, from other places. So they know they could survive by themselves mm. on foods. But um, That's quite amazing. Yeah. So I think those, mm. those technical skills are really important and growing and harvesting food are, are an important part of that. Um, you know, I live on the coast, and complicating that is the whole issue of seafood. Um, and mm. what, one of the things this woman said is, if I was, instead of being on the forest, if I sat on the seashore, I could survive for a week on mm. various seaweeds and other uh, foods that I could harvest quite easily in the water as mm. well. So yeah. her argument it is... I'm not entirely convinced, but her argument is that it's not as difficult as you would think. Mm-hmm. When I go to the fix-it fairs, for example, and I watch um, one of the, the women in, in our fix-it fair is actually a former Supreme Court judge, uh, and uh, she used to do knitting under her, her bonk, under the, the judge's, when she was making decisions and listening, she would be knitting at the same time. Um, and what she is able to repair in terms of mending clothing, darning socks, and so on. Mm-hmm. Like we have this fix it fair for roughly, it goes for roughly three hours. And people go home with like armloads of stuff that she's fixed in that short period of time. Yeah. So if a Supreme yeah. Court judge can learn to do this, there's no reason why the, the rest of us can't. But again, it's not that everybody needs to know how to repair their own clothes. You just need to know some people in your community do it and who, who those people are and what you can offer to them in return. Yes. So how have you gone about focusing your attention um, skills-wise? How have you selected skills 
to to hone because you have mentioned um, when we were emailing that you've been on a bit of a journey with facilitation right. and that has been a struggle for you potentially. So, um, yeah, I'm keen to hear how, um, you know, if you've, if you've oriented yourself towards things that have come a little more naturally or if you've gone and pushed your edge in certain respects as well. A little bit of both. Um, it took me a long time to figure out what my distinctive competency in life was. And that turned out to be through imagination. I was, I was, I wasn't a lonely kid, but I was a solitary kid growing up. I was scared of other kids, so um, I learned to entertain myself. I invented my own games and so on. So I had a very rich imagination. I had lots of practice imagining when I was young, and it took me a long time in the business world to realize. But what my business clients valued more than anything else was the fact that I could say, you know, I read about this in a science book today. And I wonder whether or not this thing that butterflies do, like one example is, is butterflies have, um, their, their wings are too light to be able to, to support pigment. So the way in which color is seen in a butterfly's wing is through refraction of the cells. So that it can be incredibly lightweight without uh, needing, and still very bright and beautiful. Um, and I sat down with a, a guy who was in the thin, thin, thin film coatings business, and he said, you know, what you just talked about, we could apply to anti-counterfeiting. Uh, of currencies. So instead of worrying about how we color the, the, the currency, maybe we, maybe we ch change the way which you, in which we use the paper. So the paper actually has, then you can't counterfeit it unless you've actually got the paper. doesn't matter whether you got the, the ink or not. Um, mm. um, so those are the kinds of things. And, and so I think the key is to learn what are, what are your distinctive competencies and then determine how they, they could be or will be valuable in the community in which, in which you're located. Um, and so my distinctive companies, I think I have a, a big chart uh, up on my wall of the Wikipedia um, Cognitive Bias Codex, which is absolutely fascinating. It's, it's, 260 different cognitive biases, all categorized that people have. Um, and I discovered when I was younger that, um, you know, my critical skills really were fairly intellectual. So it was imagination, it was curiosity, it's critical thinking, um, and so on. And so I've learned how to apply those. Um, but what I have also learned is what I'm no good at. And one of the things that I got involved with a number of years ago was uh, the business of facilitation. Um, and I was intrigued by it because my experience in business with facilitation was absolutely awful. We had facilitators who basically thought their job was to convince the employees what the boss had already decided to do. They were not the least bit interested 
in hearing the ideas <laughs> of the employees. That wasn't, that wasn't the purpose of the exercise. So that was my experience with facilitation. I had a negative view of it. Uh, and then I got involved with this whole group of facilitators up and down the West Coast. And we ended up, actually, we were going to write a book about facilitation. Um, and it ended up being a card deck because it was more fun again. And more people have learned. We sold thousands of copies of this facilitation card deck. Um, but because my experience was so awful, the group did not use my stories to help identify the important patterns in good facilitation. They used my war stories of how not to facilitate. I told them all these terrible stories. And they basically said, okay, flip it around. How can we convert that terrible example of how not to facilitate into an example of how to do it well? Mm. Um, so that and was how is, I learned. Mm, okay. Yeah, I mean, facilitation, it is on your list of, of soft skills, and I believe it's italicized, maybe one of the ones you've um, yeah. picked out as really quite important. Um, it, it feels a little slippery to me, and I know a lot of people, um, it's only in recent years that I've understood um, somewhat the role of a facilitator and how um, how kind of alchemical um, a group or a gathering or a well-facilitated space can can be and what can arise from that. But are you able to describe why facilitation is an important skill, especially in this time sure. that we find ourselves in? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. You're not the only one that has trouble identifying why it's so important or what it is even. Every time I cross the border, when I have gone to events that are facilitation-related and the, the people say, well, what event are you going to? And I'd say, I'm going to a facilitation conference. <laughs> Very meta. Oh, what, what's that? What are you going to do exactly? <laughs> um, so eventually we learn to say, we're going to a, a learning session on how to conduct better meetings. That, that they can kind of relate to. Um, yeah, I think it's important primarily because communities are going to have to relearn how to self-organize. Um, we're going to have to take a lot of these self-identified leaders in our communities down a notch or two because they may be perfectly competent at leading in a, in a hierarchical system that has a huge amount of available resources to deal with. So, so they, you can pretty well automate the process. In, uh, in a highly, you know, oil-dependent, uh, complex environment. But when you're starting to rebuild things from scratch, you have to learn how to self-organize, to self-manage. Um, and so that's why I think it's so important. And a key part of it, of the reason why I think uh, so much, so many of us are poor at facilitating is because we're no good at listening. My experience has been that almost all the best facilitators that I have met have been women. Um, and I don't know whether why that seems to be the, <clears throat> the case, that they just, they're better listeners uh, than men are as a rule. Mm -hmm. um, but facilitation basically is the skill of helping a group 
to achieve a common objective where everybody in the room brings something different to the solution of that problem. So the job of the facilitator is to say, okay, this person is going to be add, add value in this area, this person is going to add value in this area, and to bring out the best in everybody in the room. And that mm -hmm. starts with listening. And I think that's why it's so important, because the community is going to have to self-organize in such a way that it knows who has what skills and who has what needs and weaknesses. And how do you match those up in a way that involves everybody and doesn't require somebody who knows everything and, and has to take charge of the process? Mm -hmm. So that's yes, why facilitation yeah. makes the list. Yeah. And of course, um, not everyone is able to articulate themselves or express themselves or advocate for their ideas and skills and gifts um, in the same way. And... I'm guessing that as a facilitator, you're picking up those imbalances in groups as well and trying to maintain some kind of, um, you know, equilibrium in a group of people or, as you say, draw out, draw out people who really do deserve to be heard and have wonderful things that are being harboured that are often overshadowed and dominated by louder voices in the group who are much better at simply selling themselves. Yeah, and they're, they're definitely a challenge to deal with that. Um, I find one of the challenges is when you're dealing with groups with different demographics as well, and that applies in a number of different ways, but one of them is cultural differences. Um, I, I, I'm living now in a community that is incredibly multicultural, and I, I remember walking into our local bistro the other day, and I have finally learned there was a couple talking. One was English, and the other w was a woman who was apparently Japanese. And the English-speaking guy, I don't know what language they were speaking, the English-speaking guy was going on and on and on. And the Japanese woman was nodding and nodding and nodding and nodding, waiting for the, the uh, English-speaking guy to shut up. Um, and, you know, there was, there was two things going on there. The, the first was that the, uh, the English-speaking guy figured that a nod meant I agree with you. Mm. When what it actually means in the Japanese culture is I hear you. It doesn't necessarily mean I agree with you whatsoever. And the other thing about the Japanese culture that I learned from sitting in the bistro doing a little bit of cultural anthropology uh, was that in the Japanese culture, after a conversation, you always leave a gap. Um, whereas in English cultures, that gap is kind of an embarrassment. you gotta, you got to fill it somehow. you got to fill in that space. Mm. Whereas in Japanese culture, after somebody says something, you can have an unawkward pause of 30 seconds or a minute where nobody says anything. And nobody has a problem with it. <laughs> I don't think we're quite the same way. Yeah. 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 That's a great point. We so do there, not the, like the, the cultural differences are, can be a challenge and we're going to, we're going to deal with that. Um, not only in, um, different cultures, eth eth ethnically different cultures, but also generationally 
different cultures. Um, when we find ourselves in community, we're going we're gonna to discover that old people and middle-aged people and young people, their style of communication, their style of learning is inevitably going to be different. So one size does not fit all <laughs> when it comes mm. to uh, the give and take of building community. I'm wondering um, if you have elders in your community you look to and they're playing or they're inhabiting that space of really holding something for the greater community and also too if you are undergoing or have undergone any initiation or rites of passage that is helping you move towards a position of eldership in your community. <laughs> I think diseases are enough of a rite of passage of getting old. <laughs> um, I know a number of people who have been involved in those kinds of rites, particularly because of the fact that we're trying to reconnect here in British Columbia with our First Nations heritage and understanding. So there is, there is a, there is a, an elder program uh, that enables some of the older people on, on Bowen Island in particular to learn more about the ways and practices of First Nations people and to be able to represent them. So I think that's going on to a considerable extent in, um, among the, the older uh, communities. I think it's less... It, it's less. It's had less of an impact when it comes to younger people, and I, I don't know how you deal with that. I don't know how you um, get them. I don't know how you even get them into the same room to talk about things because they're. We live in a in a atomized kind of a culture now, and in many cases, it's stratified based on uh, either. Uh, um, ethnic or uh, demographic um, stratifications. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so if, if all you're ever talking to is other people your own age, how do you get the kind of perspectives and the depth of skills that you're going to need to create a community that has to be open and inclusive for everybody? Yeah. I wonder if it's um, what I see as a magnetism, like a draw that people have ultimately to certain um, aspects that may be undernourished at the moment. You know, the way that um, when I go camping, I know that oftentimes there'll be groups of young people out there in the bush too because they are yearning to be in wilder spaces. But, of course, they take their footy and their boombox and they make a, a ruckus and it's really unpleasant for everyone else at the campsite. But right. I see that as this this latent desire, like something tugging at them, calling them back to the land in some way, even though that may seem um, a little fraught when it's so noisy. But in, this, in the same way, I wonder if we have an understanding or an inner knowing that we do need to connect with our elders or we do need to, I don't know, be in community and that's expressed differently and could be more sophisticated, but it might it might we might just be drawn inevitably, um, especially if things become more challenging. Well, yeah, this is the problem. As I say, community is born of necessity. Um, when you don't have to live in community with other people, when you can survive just fine, you know, all by yourself, year after year, you don't learn the skills. You don't discover the things that you need to know about yourself and about your neighbors in order to be able to do that. Mm. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, nature and nature connection, I'm interested to know, Dave, if you have a practice or a, a connection practice with the more than human world in the place where you're living, um, what are some of the ways that you enjoy um, the world around you and some of the the pleasures and wonders of your place? Uh, my favourite one, I'm, I live up on the 42nd floor of an apartment building. This is not a good place to be when collapse happens. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm here for a short time as a renter for complicated reasons, so please don't suggest to anybody that uh, living on the 42nd floor is an example of sustainable <laughs> sustainable Somebody living. Yeah, I guess. But so this is the circumstances I find myself in. And one of the joys of that is not only the incredible view that I have um, out the window, but it's a fascinating place to watch birds, um, and particularly bird behaviors in groups. And how much I learn from comparing how birds in groups and studying how birds in groups behave compared to how humans live. So that's a key part of it. I also do, um, and I generally will summarize this once a month on the blog. It's part of the, the ritual that I've learned as a blogger now is my last post of every month is uh, the result of what I call my mindful wandering. And that is almost always in natural places. So walk along river, river banks, I'll walk up into the mountains, um, down to the lake uh, or down to the ocean. Um, and I'll just write about my experiences, what I've, uh, what I've run into. And so having that imperative forces me not only to get out into nature, but it forces me to pay attention because I'm looking for anecdotes, stories, narratives that are going to be interesting to the reader. So that focus forces me to pay attention. And that's another skill. I mean, we live in such an attention deficit society uh, that for me to learn to pay attention, it's almost as hard as learning to listen well. Mm -hmm. And uh, these were skills that were never rewarded in all of my years in business. I didn't have to listen. I, you know, I was high up in the organization. I got to tell people what to do. I didn't have to listen to them. Um, and I didn't have to pay attention because everything was kind of, if you learned how things work, you did things the way you'd been taught to do them. Um, but the sheer joy of paying attention, it's not only uh, an essential skill to learn uh, when you're going to have to relearn the context. You know, it's, uh, it's also a, a, a joyful skill as well. Yes, yeah, it is extremely pleasurable. But the implication is that when you're wandering and there's a, some kind of need there to be foraging or understanding what's happening seasonally and what's changing in your environment, the impetus is taking those stories back to the village or understanding deeply how to interact then with the systems around us. It's, it's a joy but also a necessity um, to be place-based humans, creaturely humans who really know, you know, what's what's flowering, what's fruiting, what's predating, 
Um, so there are reasons for having good attention and noticing skills. Right. Uh, when I was, uh, one of the jobs that I had with this large consulting organization was as their chief knowledge officer. The, <laughs> what a title. <laughs> the, yeah. I think I was the first and last chief knowledge officer of the organization. But there was a time in which intellectual property was a big deal in business. It was kind of a hot subject for the, for the year. Um, and one of the things that we developed were these models of what knowledge is. And, of course, organizational learning ties into all of that. Uh, but one of the things that I got out of that, which was really valuable, is understanding that there's three kinds of knowledge. There is know what knowledge, um, you know, facts, history, uh, processes, and so on. There is know how knowledge, how to do things. And there's know who knowledge, which is that who knows how to do this? Who else is good at doing this. And to me, the key to, um, to being successful in, in community when things will require us to do that is a good mix of those three. You're going to need to have some know-what knowledge, some know-how, and a lot of know-who. The know-who, uh, the ability to create, sustain, and reciprocally draw on and use relationships um, is going to be absolutely critical. The three no theory, I really love it. Now, I believe that you wanted to share something from Molly Hausch-Gordon, um, and I think it is a really beautiful way to wrap up a conversation like this, and what she writes is just a riot and wonderful. So I'd recommend people check out her writings on Substack. Um, but I'd love to ask you, Dave, if there's anything else you wanted to touch on or speak to before we end on Molly's 12 steps. Um, I guess one of the things that I wrote about in the article was what I'd learned from reading Terry LePage's uh, book, Eye of the Storm, which I didn't love as a book, but I found it challenging and interesting. Uh, and it identified some additional things that we need, that we can do in order to be able to adapt as collapse happens. And a couple of them I thought were, were really useful. Um, the first one is the importance of finding out where you really belong. Um, and that's, I don't know that there's a process for that. Um, it's largely an intuitive thing. I have been in, in places in my life where I just said, I could live here. Mm -hmm. And other places where I've said, oh my God, how does anybody <laughs> live here? Mm -hmm. um, so the, the beginning, I think it's important to begin to understand now where you really belong. And having those conversations with with the people that you care about as well. Because right now we rely, I've got kids on the other half of the, the other half of the country. They're all grown up, but uh, um, we're going to reach a stage fairly early in collapse where air travel is going to be out of the question. Um, so one of the first things we're going to need to adapt to 
is the fact you're going to be stuck with the people who are close at hand. And if the people you really care about are thousands of miles away, it's not too early to start thinking about whether or not you want to move closer to them or move them closer to you. Uh, I thought that was uh, really valuable. And the other thing that I'm finding out, you know, I mean, we're reading about this in the news now every day, is developing our capacity to offer people refuge. We are likely to have, by the time collapse gets into full uh, gear, we're likely to have as many, according to the latest reports I just read, of 2 billion refugees. People who will have to move, not for economic reasons, but because the places they're living are just not inhabitable anymore. And as climate change worsens, we might find that we're part of that as well. We'll be okay for the first part, but, you know, as things continue to get worse, we may all be on the move. Um, so learning how to offer people refuge, especially when we've got such a fearful anti-immigrant mentality. Um, and again, I understand that. People are driven by fear. They're terrified about how millions of people moving into their neighborhood are going to negatively affect them. And uh, so part of learning how to offer people refuge is learning how to understand that these people are just like us. And, you know, uh, so I thought those were really useful. But yeah. other than that, I'm ready to jump into concluding with the, the little excerpt from Molly Hoosh Gordon's uh, sermon, if that's okay that for a wrap-up. That would be great. Thank you. All right. Uh, the sermon was called How to Survive the End of the World. <laughs> um, and it's in second person conditional, which I, is, a, is a tense that I try not to use because the more I study collapse, the, the, the more I realize I don't know. So I usually put, it, put these things out in the, in the uh, you know, these are possibilities there. Uh, and so, so, I think it's very smart and pretty funny. And so here's what she says. This is how she concluded her sermon about how to survive the end of the world. Get to know your neighbors. Feed them. Let them feed you. Watch each other's kids, grandkids, and pets. Develop the muscle of generosity like you're training for a giving ultramarathon. Share everything you can with anyone who asks and ask for what you need. Get in touch with your body. You will need it, and it knows things. Pay attention to what is happening below your neck. <laughs> tell the truth, and tell it to yourself first. Sit at the feet of your most vulnerable neighbors, and in your most vulnerable places, they have the most to teach you about survival. Listen. Remember your ancestors and the things they survived. Find the resilience that is your birthright and the courage that made way for your life. Practice taking risks. Show up in every struggle where someone is fighting for their dignity because that is how we will all survive. Learn about reparations and native sovereignty. Double down 
on exorcising supremacy systems from your soul. Learn to be tender. Refuse to be hardened. Let your heart be moved every damn time. Root in the place you are. Learn its history. Learn its geography. Learn its seasons. Sing a lot and dance. Make art. Make love. Rest luxuriously. Eat pie. The world is ending and beginning now. Let us love, connect, and fight like hell for the dignity of each and all. Isn't that gorgeous? Yeah, yeah, it is glorious. I wish I could write sermons like that. <laughs> well, I for one love the ripples that you cast into the world and I've been so enjoying your your offerings and your articles and am extremely gratified and appreciative that you agreed to come on the podcast and I think this is the perfect way to start Resilience, and I've really enjoyed speaking to you today, Dave. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been great, and I look forward to hearing uh, from all of the subsequent speakers on the podcast and seeing how I can contribute. It was such an honour to speak with Dave, and I hope you're compelled to take a deep and bracing dive into his back catalogue. Knowing that I never stick around to hear the end of a podcast, this closing bit is just for the diehards. If you're still here, you're a legend, and I'm going to pay that commitment by letting you know who's joining us for episode two. It's one of the most radical women of my acquaintance, Meg Ullman from Artist's Family. She's a permaculture neo-peasant propagator, a village augmenting and mending miracle worker, a writer, facilitator, fermenter, storyteller, a two-wheeled wonder, and a composer of the stickiest songs you'll ever hear. It really is a cracker of a convo, so cue up Resilience episode two to hear Meg's story straight from the magpie's beak. Pretty soon, uh, I'm going to get a Patreon up and running so we can connect and chat about the creative process of podcasting, what's coming up from these conversations, and any other enriching resources you'd like to swap and share. Also, feel free to get in touch with me on the gram with guest suggestions or ways to make the podcast more fun suggestions. I'd really love to hear them. Oh, and I know that it's only episode one, but if you're feeling big of heart and limber of thumb, you can hop onto iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called and leave Resilient some stars and a nice review. Thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, there's a thornbill outside my window eating bugs in the tree, which reminds me it is time for tea. Resilient you later. <laughs>